You're listening to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Governor David Ige gave his fourth and final State of the State address this morning. Uh, he got a little choked up at the very end. HPR's Bill Dorman joins us with some of the highlights of that speech. Yeah, Catherine, well, we listened to that together and uh, certainly got a little uh, choked up at the end, as as you say. And uh, it was, I think, in, in some ways an ambitious address, as these speeches are. It's a bit of a look back, uh, also a bit of a look forward. Governor, of course, not eligible for re-election, so this is his last one. But he did lay out some goals he wants to reach in 2022. Some of those are very general. They're broad. They're thematic. Uh, some are more specific, though, and many are going to require the cooperation of the state legislature when it comes to funding and, and putting meat on the bones here. In coming days and weeks, we're going to see how these approaches may come together, how they may differ, especially with the leadership of, of both houses of the legislature. But it was interesting to to hear Again, some of the priorities and some of those specifics, and I'm thinking, for instance, under the category of health care, hearing about the specifics of a uh, of a program to asking the legislature to fund the expansion of UH's doctor's residency program. So that would increase, he says, the number of doctors doing residencies on neighbor islands from about five to about 50. It, and I think in in addresses like the state of the state, you look for potentially transformational ideas. This is something that really could have broad impact uh, around the islands. Um, we'll, we'll see where this uh, where this goes and, and also the addition to, uh, to nursing education uh, as well in terms of part of that, that health uh, discussion and, and conversation. Um, also, in preparing for this year's state of the state, I went back mm-hmm. a couple of years yes. to some <laughs> so of the state I. of yeah. the states, right? Mm-hmm. And and that in terms of a talk about checks and balances with with government, uh, such an important part of our process. Uh, sometimes reality checks are a little important as well. Last year, of course, was similar to this year in that because of the pandemic, the address was from the, his office. It was not at the legislature. One of the things you, you hear it in the State of the Union address as well from the president, it's interesting to see what the dynamics of that are on applause lines or on support, um, you know, what gets interrupted, what gets thunderous applause, what gets a bit of a polite smattering. Uh, of course, the, that dynamic is, is not there at all. But people may forget that two years ago, this was – so this is January 2020. Take your time machines back to January 2020, pre-pandemic in a very different time um, because at that state of the state address delivered before the legislature, there was a package of bills that the governor's office and the legislative leadership had put together – to help working families. He said at that time, we challenged each other to identify ways to take on reducing the cost of living for working families, committed to a package of bills and committed to shaping these bills and ushering them through the legislative process. We made a promise to make life better for our working families. Uh, That included, of course, progress towards a a living wage movement, towards a living wage, a movement on the minimum wage. Of course, all of this, and understandably so, got sidetracked, mm-hmm. wiped out by the pandemic. But it's interesting. I was sort of listening to see if there were going to be echoes of that this time in, in a united plan. And I didn't really hear that. I don't How about how you heard well, that? Well, I guess my takeaway was that, you know, he, he's saying, you know, here's what's driving my ideas, mm-hmm. you know. And, and some of those, I mean, I think Every lawmaker cares about, you know, family, ohana, mm-hmm. uh, you know, our economic well-being, because uh, that's all tied together, you know, the education of our of our young children. Uh, 
you know, so, but it was, you know, going back to that original speech in, in 2019, yeah, it was kind of eerie when you think that, gosh, we had an inkling of what was to come. Even last year on the 2021 State of the State, uh, talking about the importance of having accurate, reliable, timely information, it means having an effective testing system to identify outbreaks, a comprehensive contact tracing network, means having the resources to isolate those with the virus and to provide the medical care they need. You look at that a year later and you sort of think, ouch, on on some of that. Again, I, I know it's uh, State of the States are aspirational. They, they need cooperation and and working together uh, with the legislature to make these these policies uh, happen for the, the people of Hawaii. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. Yeah. I mean, you know, lots of talk about the federal support we're going to get with the infrastructure bill and the, you know, broadband, uh, because, you know, it, the technology piece in, in all of this is so critical. It was our weak point, our Achilles heel. I tell you one key thing to watch, how this money is administered. Who is in charge of divvying this up and seeing how it is divided and what specific projects it goes to? That's going to be an area for continued examination for for folks like this. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bill Dorman. We have been talking to our news director, Bill Dorman, uh, who he brought us highlights from Governor David Ige's final State of the State address. We have been watching the latest COVID counts. It went down to 2660 over the last couple of days. Still high, but not in record 6,000 territory that we saw in the previous weeks. This morning, we talked to Hilton Rachel very early this morning before the official counts were released. This weekend, additional nurses funded by FEMA's reimbursement program arrived in the islands, bringing the total to more than 700 healthcare workers brought in to deal with the staffing crisis. The state had asked for more than 900 in anticipation of record high hospitalizations. Here's Hilton. It's still too early to tell if this actually is the peak of the Omicron surge. There are some indication that it is a peak, but just because it's a peak doesn't mean we're through this. We may have reached the peak of infections, but typically the rate of hospitalizations continues to increase for 7 to 10 or even 14 days after the peak of the infections. So that means the worst of the hospitalizations or the highest number of hospitalizations is potentially still in front of us. And then we don't know, you know how quickly it will come down if it is coming down. So we still have a number of weeks yet that we're going to have to continue to deal with this surge, and it will extend well into February. Last week, you said that it's possible that we could exceed the 400 hospitalizations. The modeling group, HIPAM, I know, was saying it could be 600. Yeah, we would be very surprised if it got that high. We've broken 400 a couple of days. We don't have the numbers for today yet. But at the end of last week, we did have just over 400 COVID hospitalizations. Now, that does include the incidental COVID hospitalizations, but we have been counting incidental hospitalizations since the beginning of the pandemic. So they've always been there. So we haven't yet gotten quite as high as the peak of the Delta surge, which is 436 COVID hospitalizations. But we are fairly close. So it is possible that we will get to that number. Now, there is a very important difference, though, between the Delta surge and the Omicron surge, and that is the number of ICU patients during the Delta surge, 20 to 30% of our COVID patients were in an ICU, whereas during the Omicron surge, we only have about 10 to 12%, and that number's holding relatively consistent. And that's very good news because it means that the people who are in hospital because of Omicron generally are not as sick as they were during the Delta surge. And it means we have less people on ventilators, less people on high flow oxygen. And that is very good news because, again, they're less sick. And also because we have less people in our ICUs, it means our ICUs, our intensive care units, are not as stressed during this surge as they were during the Delta surge. Okay, so well, that's the good thing. 
the bad thing is that you've got a lot of patients at the hospitals that really could be moved to other facilities, and they can't accept anybody new because of the a staff shortage, right, that Omicron is causing. Yeah, we have a significant issue in terms of what we call wait-listed patients. And wait-listed patients are patients who are in our hospitals and they are waiting. They're on a list and they're waiting, which is hence the term wait-listed. So we've got a number of patients in our hospitals who are waiting to be transferred to generally a long-term care uh, setting or a, what we call a post-acute setting. Now, at any time you know, in our history, we have patients who are waiting for a variety of reasons to being transferred. But during this Omicron surge, we have had a much higher number of patients that are sitting in a hospital bed waiting to be transferred. And the number is as high as perhaps 200, which is, you know, we've never had that number of patients waiting to be transferred. And the primary issue is that in our long-term care settings, we have a lot of nurses and also CNAs certified nurse assistants working in those settings. And they are being impacted by the Omicron surge and by the high rate of transmission of this variant in the community. And so we have a lot of staff out both in our hospitals and our long-term care settings. Now, in our hospitals, we're fortunate we've been able to bring in staff from the mainland. We have over almost 700 personnel on the ground right now from the mainland helping out our hospitals but we've not been able to bring in staff for a variety of reasons into our long-term care settings. And so in our long-term care settings, our skilled nursing facilities, we have plenty of beds that are available. You know, we have all the resources. We just don't have the staff. And so we have, then patients are backed up in our hospitals. And one of the reasons our hospitals are so full is because we cannot transfer enough of these wait-listed patients into a post-acute care setting. And did that situation ease up any at all over the weekend? No, it has not. We still have a very large number, probably close to 200. I still don't have today's numbers yet. We're just gathering those today. But, you know, going back a few weeks, we only had 80 to 100 wait-listed patients in our hospital. So that has doubled in the last couple of weeks. So what's your biggest priority right now? I mean, I don't know what the fix is on the staffing, you know, if we can't use those traveling nurses uh, in those settings. Well, it's a real challenge. We have been looking for sources of funding to bring in staff from the mainland uh, to help our long-term care facilities. There are staff available. The challenge is getting the funding because it is expensive to bring in staff from the mainland. The FEMA funding, the FEMA-funded personnel, they are incredibly helpful in our hospitals, but the FEMA funding only covers staff who who are working on COVID-positive patients. So in other words, they can only work in you know, dealing with COVID. And fortunately, in our long-term care facilities, we have a very low incidence of COVID residents because they are very, very well vaccinated. Our staff are very well vaccinated. And, but they, the staff are getting exposed, but we've been able, a number of staff have been exposed or tested positive, but we've been able to have very good success in our interactional settings. We're restricting visitation and there's other, you know, very strong infection control measures in place. So it is a real challenge. I think in our long-term care facilities, unfortunately, we're just going to have to ride this out. We're getting as many staff as we can to support our hospitals, and the FEMA-funded staff from the mainland are able to work on COVID patients, which means that the staff, our local staff, can work on the non-COVID patients and continue to help take care of these waitlisted patients until we get enough staff back into our long-term care facilities where we, where we can transfer those patients. But the other challenge is it's much more expensive to take care of a patient in an acute care setting or a hospital than it is in a skilled nursing facility. So it's frustrating from that perspective is that we have to spend a lot more money to take, you know, the cost structure is just higher in a hospital than it is in a skilled nursing facility. And so that's just a reality, but it's something we're having to deal with and we'll probably will just have to ride this one out for the next two or three weeks. And what are you hearing from Maui? What's the latest there? Because that case count is really rising as well. 
Maui Memorial at the end of last week, which is the latest numbers we had, Maui Memorial alone had over 50 waitlisted patients, and exactly the same reason. So because there's a limited number of long-term care facilities on Maui, and the long-term care facilities on Maui, they'd like to be able to take you know, some of these patients from Maui Memorial, but they just don't have the staff to do it, and they're working very hard to get their staff back. They do, they're looking at the CDC guidelines where you can bring staff back earlier if they're asymptomatic. And so they're looking at that, but it is a very, very challenging situation on Maui right now. And Maui's mayor, you know, has instituted, you know, the boosters. I don't know, do you hope to see something like that happen here on Oahu? Well, we're very supportive of the booster shots because the evidence is very, very clear that especially with Omicron, that booster shots do provide a much higher level of protection after four to five months after getting the two shots of Moderna or Pfizer or the single shot of Johnson & Johnson. So boosters have proven to be highly effective at reducing hospitalizations, reducing very severe illness and reducing death. And so we're very, very supportive of boosters and would encourage everyone to get their booster shot if they're eligible for it. So, yes, we would be supportive of the new definition, which we believe will happen at some point, both at a national level and a state level, where being fully vaccinated means that you have both the primary series and the booster if you're eligible for it. In other words, if enough time has passed that you are eligible for that booster shot. Do you personally feel that we ought to have more restrictions here on Oahu? It's that balance, Catherine, between you know, dealing with the pandemic and dealing with public health and the economic health of the state is very, very important. The ability of people to go about and live their lives with appropriate protections, wearing masks indoors, you know, not congregating in very large groups, those types of things. I think the safe travel program that we have is very, very effective. Nothing's perfect, but I believe there's a good mix of public health measures and appropriate restrictions. You know, you still have to be vaccinated to sit down at a restaurant, for example, and we're very supportive of that. And that has shown to be, again, none of these measures are perfect, but I believe there's a very good balance that we have right now. You know, we'll be looking at the numbers very, very carefully over the next few days to see if there's a true turn in this surge. It would be very, very good if it was a true turn and we had reached the peak of the infections, but Again, the hospitals will be very busy for another few weeks yet. Unfortunately, the death rate is creeping up a little bit, which is what we would expect at this point in the surge. It's not high, but it is certainly, you know, it's gone up over the last couple of weeks. So we would, you know, we're hoping, just like a lot of people are hoping, that we can get back to some sense of normalcy as we get toward the end of February and into March and April. Do we have any idea how many additional flying nurses are coming in this week? We had a large number come in this weekend. So we have just under 700 on the ground right now. And we are still working to bring in another contingent of staff this coming weekend. So we, we don't have the exact counts yet, but we, we may have an additional 100 come in this coming weekend. That was Hilton Rachel of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, hoping we have turned the corner on the Omicron variant, uh, but it is still too soon to tell. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance executive MBA in travel industry management. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Hospitals are being crushed by a surge in patients with the Omicron wave. We are essentially overwhelmed. In a normal year, we would be seeing 80 to 85 patients a day. Um, over the last week, we've been seeing over 100 patients a day. But healthcare experts say COVID is a symptom, not the cause of hospitals being overwhelmed. So what needs to change? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. 
Support for HPR comes from Nikos Kailua near Aikahi Shopping Center, serving lunch, poo-poos, and dinner, offering takeout and limited dine-in and bar seating, featuring live music, hours and menu at nikoskailua.com. This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olana, omau, okaholabe. Did you know that yesterday was National Pie Day? Well, we're talking pie for today's Backyard Quiz. Bakeries are some of the longest-running and most beloved businesses in Hawaii. We do love our bread and pastries. Before it closed last year, Love's Bakery had been in operation for 170 years. On Maui, a Komodo store and bakery has been around since 1916, and Omoiri Bakery on Kauai is one of the oldest on the island. On Hawaii Island, one bakery is still serving up its popular apple, peach, pear, and coconut pies today. It opened over 90 years ago in the heart of an old sugar plantation town in Kapa'au. The owner started out uh, simple, turning f- out fresh white bread and on pan and delivering it to the plantation worker camps in the area. It was only after a few decades in business that they introduced their signature pies to their production line. And now their name is synonymous with the dessert. So for today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us the name of this Hawaii Island Pie Bakery? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. January happens to be Kalaupapa Month, and today for our reality check, Honolulu Civil Beat has a story about how this pandemic has restricted access to the settlement longer than anyone imagined. Reporter Brittany Light joins us. Good morning, Brittany. Good morning. So, yeah, it, it uh, you know, has been something to kind of look at that settlement there because of the parallels with this pandemic. Uh, but what did you find in your reporting? Yeah, it's... I think a lot of what the former patients and other residents have been experiencing in Kalapapa, you know, mimics what we all experienced uh, early in the pandemic. But the difference is that they've been under, you know, stricter policies um, to to keep these former patients safe from this disease for which they're very, very high risk. Um, so, you know, living in Kalapapa today is is you know, sort of a very lonely experience. Um, I think one of the biggest difficulties for the former patients is they've not been able to have their families or friends visit them there since early March of 2020. And so as far as the the count of patients uh, that are tied to Kalapapa, what can you tell us? Yes, so there are nine former uh, Hansen's disease patients left uh, living uh, folks who who continue to choose to live in Kalapapa, um, you know there are others who who don't live there full time, but but there are nine who do, um, and they range in age from 80 years old to 97 years old. Um, so you know, in addition to having some you know lingering symptoms from Hansen's disease, they're also you know dealing with conditions associated with old age. Yeah, and, and a lot of the residents do go back and forth, uh, you know, from uh, Kalapapa to Honolulu, where you know, they might require, a, you know, a more advanced treatment at one of the hospitals here. 
Right, because there's no resident doctor there. Um, you know, they do have doctors who, who come to visit, but there isn't one there around the clock. There's no hospital there. It's more nursing home setting level of care that they're able to receive there on the peninsula. And the area has been closed to tours, you know, throughout this pandemic to protect the residents. Yes, it's been closed to tours. Uh, more than half of the non-patient residents whose jobs were not deemed essential were, um, you know, had to leave at the beginning of the pandemic. So the population has really shrunk just from that as well. Um, and, you know, really the Department of Health, which manages the peninsula, they're considering the entire area, they're treating it as a care home. So some of the stricter policies that, that would be associated with a care home, you know, that's what everyone there is is living under right now. Right. And then you've got the federal workers, the National Park Service. I think you've got postal workers and, and they, um, you know, can can move around, um, you know, and um, and leave the settlement and go back down. Right, right. They can leave, uh, you know, but uh, for, for a very long time in the beginning, you know, they couldn't leave. I talked to somebody who they couldn't leave without a 14-day quarantine, of course. You know, I talked to someone who said, you know, her husband had to leave every couple of weeks to go to Topside Molokai to, to check on family. And every time that he would return, you know, they would both need to quarantine for 14 days because they shared a household. Um so, so just some of the rules that they've they've adopted there are are a little bit tighter than what you would have experienced if you know anywhere else in the state, really. And you know, I know when we've been talking to folks over there, uh, communication that has been an issue. The the cell phone service, you know, internet is a little spotty. Yeah, so I think you know what's made this time a little bit more isolating is that they have these frequent telecommunications blackouts that can last for weeks. Uh, so, you know, it can be difficult to just get a hold of the outside world at times there. It's, it's very routine to have, you know, the phone lines down or the internet down, uh, things like that. So, yeah. you know, I think Kalapapa is a is a very quiet place. Uh, you know, it always really has been, uh, but but now just much more so. And, you know, what I learned is that you know, the patients do have a fear of this virus and they, um, you know, really expect the Department of Health to protect them from it. At the same time, they're really grappling with some, some real loneliness. Oh, yeah. It, it's hard if you can't uh, talk to someone on Facebook, you know, or, or call them uh, and they're isolated once again. Exactly. Yes. I mean, for them, it's it's kind of a reverse of what happened to them before. You know, now they're sort of... Um, you know, being isolated, but but it's for their own protection. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Brittany. You're welcome. That was reporter Brittany Light with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. years ago, firefighter by day and filmmaker by night, Jeff Wallace had only a name, Angel by Thursday. Now that's the title of his first feature film. The conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote spoke with Wallace about how that first spark of inspiration led him down a decade-long path. Just for our listeners who have not yet had the opportunity to see this film, can you give them the non-spoiler version of what they might be in store for? Angel by Thursday is a drama. And it spans a generation, you'll see. But it's basically about two families that are drawn together by tragedy. And I won't spoil what the tragedy is, but it's a way for them to to reconcile, find peace, and I think find love. So it's a full circle story that I think a lot of people can relate to because life can be messy. In your personal life, are you someone whose life has been marked by a lot of these types of connections or coincidences or seemingly almost miraculous interventions? I have to say that's true. I definitely believe things happen for a reason, and it's happened enough times where it's uncanny, like you mentioned. And so I think the coming together of this this picture, and it, it spanned numerous years to get it finished, 
But things fell into place when they were supposed to. I met people that I was supposed to, and it just worked out. So, yes, I think from a personal standpoint, I can definitely relate. Do you feel like this film, in the years since you initially conceived and started to create this idea and the story, has changed in what it means to you? Oh, I, I believe so, yes, this COVID thing. I've had personal, lost personal friends to it, and it makes you stop and pause how, how vulnerable, how fragile we really are. So this story that we crafted relates to that. It's, it's, it's a matter of do I go left or do I go right, and which path do I choose, and what is the consequence when I make that choice? And the same goes for what's happening now with the COVID thing, where we, do we go out, do we not socialize? think it is relevant to what's going on today. Did you start on this film in 2011 or 2013? Well, I started writing it in 2011, and then we started filming in 2013. Wow. So, so in the interim, I mean, I was writing, and then we were, we were doing the casting, and we were doing all the stuff that I had no idea what to do because I hadn't done it before. So, yes, there was a, there was a, a two-year thing before we actually started filming. Mm. And then, so, and and then after that, it took us a year or so to finish filming, and then of course here we are today with it finished. Yeah, all inclusive. You're looking at a, a decade's worth of work. After watching this film now and and sharing it with audiences, do you feel like there are choices you might have made differently if you know what you know now, as an artist or just as someone who's ten years further into their lives? Oh, of course. How can you not, like I mentioned, we, you know, we, I, I started not knowing anything, really. I knew how to write. I thought I knew how to write. And I wanted to see what we could do. And so if I had a do-over, there's so many things I could, I could do better. Uh, not in terms of the production, because we ran a, a, a really tight, it was Ohana that we, we formed when we were filming. But in terms of my, my vision and my knowledge about the craft. My eyes got, you know, were wide open. And so for, with a do-over for the next project, it will be a completely different and, and much better. But I'm thankful for the, the cast and crew that believed in me as we worked through this. So my hat's off to them as well. So let's return to the title, Angel by Thursday. Okay. That was your starting point for this whole 10-year process. Where did right. that inspiration come from? Can you share that with us? Sure. Being that I like to write and my wife being my sounding board, we've, we sit around all the time when we do what-ifs. My wife, Claudia. We were just kicking ideas around, and Angel by Thursday, I said Angel by Thursday. I don't know. It's one of those divine things. Maybe that answers that part of the question where it just came to me, and Immediately, it felt right, and I put it aside. Uh, I filed it away, actually, with no story in mind, but it came to me, and it just kept nagging at me. There's something. There's a story, or Angel by Thursday, and when I, I said that, that to friends, what do you think of this title? And everyone had the same reaction. Man, that is a, that is a good title. It's deep. It's, you can make what you want of it, and so that, to me was the starting point. That's how, it, that's how it all started. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners about the film itself or the, the process of, of spending 10 years with something and then finally seeing it come to fruition? I think um, for me, right off the bat, once I finished the script, when I asked Claudia, I said, hey, how would you feel? Let's, let's, what do you, how do you feel about Let's try and make this thing. How hard can it be? Well, man... Yeah, it's, it's super difficult. It's super challenging. And, but she, she said, let's go for it. Why not? And so we started to you know, put it together and figure things out. How do we do this? How do we do that? And we had some friends that were in the business or had some knowledge. And so it tapped into their, their expertise and, and it got us going on a, on a path. And then, um, Maybe, again, divine intervention, where it started snowballing, where one person led to the next, to the next, to the next, and all the pieces started lining up. 
And again, with me, really, with no experience except for a couple short films. So it just built on itself, and the pieces kept falling into place um, with cast, with crew, with location. All the way down the line, it, it, it worked out. So that was, that was a, a great part of the journey, and it, and it made for a fun journey because it did. It just came natural, and, and everybody just seemed to click, and here we are. We've been hearing from filmmaker Jeff Wallace. He spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about his new feature film, Angel by Thursday. The film was shot in the islands, and full disclosure, HPR's producer Russell Subiano is a member of the cast. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence sharing updates on Elon Musk's space-based Internet satellites known as Starlink. Beware the dangers to ground-based astronomy. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet, also things we can try and spot in the sky. As usual, we are so grateful to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips, and we've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have in store this week? Hey, Dave, it's good to be here. So this week, stargazers, Saturn will be visible in the western sky till around 7 p.m., with Jupiter also visible until it sets around 8.30 p.m. The moon this week is waning, and so conditions should be perfect for spotting those faint objects in the heavens. And this week, you are updating us on the latest regarding the Starlink controversy. Indeed, Elon Musk and his ambitious Starlink space-based internet satellites are once again on the minds of astronomers everywhere. A new study released by the American Astronomical Society has highlighted the danger posed to ground-based astronomy by the Starlink mega-constellation of satellites. An analysis of images from the Zwicky Transient Facility, or ZTF, survey have shown that most, if not all, images taken during twilight have been affected by the presence of these satellites and potentially led to the loss of scientific data. And explain to folks, and to me, how these satellites actually affect images. Well, if you've ever seen a satellite in the night sky, you'll notice that they move pretty quickly in a straight line, just as a little dot. This doesn't seem too bad until you consider that images taken by ground-based observatories are long exposure images, anywhere from a few seconds to a few hours in length. As the satellite passes overhead, it creates a nasty-looking streak in the long exposure image. Unless you're looking for some psychedelic space art, I guess. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not new, though, either, huh? No, it's certainly not. Satellites have been photobombing astronomical images for decades. However, it's the sheer number of Starlink satellites that are causing a problem, as you end up with hundreds and potentially thousands of streaks in a single image. And were there methods used to try and make these things less visible? They have indeed tried to make them less visible by painting them and then even equipping them with visibility visors to make them less bright. However, these haven't turned out as well as everyone would have liked. So what you're saying is that cloak of invisibility you're working on could really have a a purpose. (laughs) Yes, a very real purpose (laughs) in hiding these satellites. (laughs) And next, my brother? Well, the largest astronomical survey ever is about to kick off over the next few years, the LSST survey. This is the deepest, most comprehensive survey of the sky ever undertaken. If we think the issue is bad now, just wait until LSST gets underway. (laughs) We will have to see if billionaire hubris can take a back seat to the pursuit of scientific knowledge. And we know who will be reporting on it. Christopher Phillips, we so appreciate it. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week with another Stargazer, which you can find at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com.
for today's backyard quiz, we asked you for the name of the Hawaii Island bakery whose name is synonymous with pie. It, start, it was started by Yoshio and Miyako Hori in 1930. They started selling bread to uh, plantation workers and others living in the area. Nearly two decades later, the couple's daughter, Margaret, came up with the idea to make pies, and she began selling them to grocery stores in 1950. The recipe for the handmade pies have remained the same for the past four generations. The filling? Apples, peaches, pears, or coconut mixed with spices. The crust is made from scratch and oh, comes out of the oven with a distinct buttery flavor. And if we've got you craving pie, then you probably want to head out to a grocery store and pick up a frozen pie from Holy's Bakery, the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And if you are wondering about the bakery's name, it's a mispronunciation of the family's last name, Hori something that just sort of stuck, and then it became their brand for 90-plus years. And congrats to our winner, Joan Giles, originally from the Big Island from Kohala. She called in from Waikiki. That is today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, investing in new ships, cranes, and terminal improvements to serve the needs of Hawaii communities for generations to come. Matson.com. This is Jason Taglianetti, host of Applause in a Small Room. In the past eight years, we've enjoyed great live performances from local and visiting artists in just about every genre. January 30th will be my last show here at HPR, and we'll listen to our most memorable performances, some you've heard and some you haven't. That's a special episode of Applause in a Small Room this Sunday at 4 p.m. here on HPR One. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from First Insurance Company of Hawaii, providing auto insurance since 1911, committed to delivering personalized service to residents throughout the islands. First Insurance Company of Hawaii, F-I-C-O-H dot com. As we've just learned in our backyard quiz, Holy's Bakery on Hawaii Island has been around for over 90 years. The family business has been able to survive several economic ups and downs in that time. When you think about how long they've been in business and how turbulent a family business can be, we wondered how they've been able to keep the company strong after all this time. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with current owner Jana Koholo'a, the great-granddaughter of the original owners, to talk about pie and family. First things first, what's your favorite pie? My original favorite was the apple. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I, after taking over this year, you know, I'm going to try them all and, you know, figure out if there was any other ones that I liked. And I actually, my favorite is the pear now. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised that, that pear, pear pie is so popular here. I've talked to other uh, pie businesses in the past, and they they've also said people are very excited about it. And pears not uh, doesn't seem like it's a uh, a fruit that many people associate with pie, but it seems to be very popular. When you think about pear, it's like oh, how do you know how does that you know it's, it's the same as apple, but you know it's just pear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah very interesting. So for many locals especially those that grew up on the Big Island like me, pie is synonymous with Holy's Bakery. And I have plenty of memories eating apple pie, peach pie growing up. I've, I know I've had the coconut and the, and the pear as well. From what I've been able to gather on the internet, Yoshio and Miyaki Hori started the bakery first by selling white bread and anpan in Kapa'au. But it wasn't until 20 years later that their daughter, Margaret, I believe your, your auntie Margaret, convince them to make and sell pies. Can you share with our listeners how pies became part of Holy's Bakery? Yes. So my auntie, she used to have one of her sisters be her taster when she would, they would experiment. And she told me that when my aunt wanted to uh, make some pies, that's when the whole thing with the pies came about. And my my great grandparents they used to also make pies, but not 
the buttered ones, and that's kind of how the buttered frozen pie started. That sounds like such a like such a good job, right? To be the pie taster. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> so I, that's I, when they did the the buttered pies, and the frozen part came came about where she wanted you know that people could just um, they sell it frozen, and people could take it home and bake it, so it'll be fresh. I love putting the pies into the oven, and then you know an hour later, my house smells like apple pie. I think mm-hmm. that's that's part of the 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 great part of of eating a, a Holy's bakery pie. You mentioned your your great grandparents, and I imagine the bakery has played a big role in your childhood. What kind of memories do you have of your grandparents, Yoshio and Miyaku? When I was born, my grandpa. They were the ones that were mostly in the bakery at that time already. My great-grandma and my grandpa, they were kind of retired already. But my memory was we, you know, we would be there every day. I mean, we grew up in there. We slept in the storeroom on flower bags because our whole family would make pies and pastries. And, you know, every morning I would wake up and my grandpa would have some kind of breakfast pastry for me in the morning. But literally grew up in the bakery sometimes i hear i hear stories about kids who grew up with like their their fathers were fishermen or 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 their parents worked in a a mill or something like that and they always kind of kind of smelled like their family business did you always kind of smell like apple pie (laughs) (laughs) smell like sugar sugar okay okay (laughs) i imagine there's worse things but uh sugar's not not too bad (laughs) sugar and dough yeah all right. Well, and you know, it, it seems to me that the buttery flavor of your pie crust is probably one of the things that makes your pies distinctive. I don't want you to give away any family secrets, but can you share with our listeners, you know, and kind of what's changed and what stayed the same in the last 70 or so years? So all of the recipes are the same. We have not changed anything. And the only the only issues that we have right now with the supply chain is getting the ingredients. So that's been a, a huge challenge this year. So the supply chain issues that, that we've kind of had across the board in, in the last uh, year or so, those those have impacted you guys as well. Yes. Has it a lot. Can you say what ingredients have been at, impacted the most? Have it been the filling or the spices? Yeah, it, it mostly the shortening. And the pie pans. There's an aluminum shortage. You're still making pies in the same building that, that they started making pies in. You guys haven't had to expand. You've been able to keep your operation in that same location? Yes. We've, we're still in the same bakery, and, and we do everything the same. You know, with this, with this pandemic that, had, that came about at the beginning of 2020, it's impacted a lot of local businesses uh, kind of put the squeeze on many of them uh, at certain po- uh, points during the pandemic, especially during the shutdown. How has your business been able to adapt? Well, when I first started in February, when I took over the business from my auntie, you know, I wasn't even thinking, you know, of the challenges. And so everything was running smoothly. And, you know, when, when we started having issues, and this was right before Thanksgiving, when we needed to make the most pies mm-hmm. of the year. And, you know, I just had to, I really had to adjust to what was available without compromising the quality and the, and the taste of the pies. And that's, you know, we've, we've come across <laughs> that obstacle and it actually turned out really, really well. So now I'm at the point where if we do have any issues with the ingredients that I'm able to adjust and, and, and not have to compromise the quality and the taste. And your the staples of your pie flavors, they are apple, peach, pear, and coconut. But I've seen on your social media accounts that you offer special pies every so often. I, I saw blueberry cream cheese and peach cream cheese were the last specials. Are there future plans to offer special flavors from time to time or add new flavors to that classic lineup? Yes, absolutely. We're we're always experimenting and my auntie, she's, you know, she's 91 now, so she's the one that helps us with the tasting, so it's 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 pretty cool that she's still here to 
to give us that guidance too with the with the pies. But yeah, we're gonna have more variety hopefully within the next year. All right. Well, ideally, like what what would be like something something you'd like to offer down the road a, a new flavor. We're thinking of ube. Yeah. Yeah, that so sounds that's, really good. That's kind of where we're we're heading right now is trying to get a ube out there. All right. I'm excited about that. Some ube pie with some coconut ice cream. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds yeah. really good. <laughs> All right. There are many ingredients that go into a business that enables it to stay in business. Holy's Bakery has been in business for over 90 years. That's amazing. It's seen its Mm -hmm. shares of ups and downs, good economic times. It's surviving the pandemic. What's the secret to such longevity? Well, all I know is you have to have that passion to work in the bakery and, and the work ethic because it's not easy. And if you don't have the passion, and when I look at how everyone was missing the pies during the pandemic. That is kind of what made me think that, you know, I can't let the legacy of the bakery die because I just see how much people just love our pies. I love that. And thank you so much for for putting in that effort to to keeping the the tradition alive. And I I love this idea that, that this business has been handed down through four generations. I commend Holy's Bakery for such longevity and for being such a pillar of the community. Yeah, yeah. So our family is really honored. My children, they're they're young adults, and they see they see the potential in expanding the business and you know keeping it alive. That's great to hear that the pies will be around for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Jana, thank you so much for your time. I really had fun talking to you. Oh, thank you. That was Jana Koholo'a, the current owner of Holy's Bakery on Hawaii Island, talking with HPR's Russell, Russell Subiono. And holy moly, Andy, I've been mispronouncing the name. I thought it was Holly. <laughs> That is it for today. Tomorrow we hear about the toll that tobacco is having on island keiki. Do you have a story, idea to share with us? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.